Well, hello there. Doing some changes to the show, cutting the music and the other things, um, getting help to publish and share my work is both expensive and time-consuming for me, so cutting out the frills. I said that I would be doing shows on Tuesday. Well, that, cha that plan needs to change. It's all about modifying kids. Keep moving as you keep going, right? So now we're moving into the next phase because I need to do shorter shows because I'm getting buried in content. So what I'm going to be doing today, well, let me clear up a couple things. You know, this week they're all yelling about, oh, Pfizer lied to us. If you're spending your time on all this stuff, you should be spending it to observe what liars look like when they talk, okay? Because, of course, they screwed everybody. What do you think they do? And they're also getting everybody to focus on just these vaccines when all the rest of them are actually murdering us. But I've covered enough of this, so I'm going to keep moving here. Okay, first I want to talk about Romans and the Bible, okay? <laughs> it's all about the money. Okay. And so what I'll do, since I'm cutting the music for the next several shows until I change my mind and figure out something better, is that uh, I'll just sing in between. <laughs> okay, let's get going on the Bible. Now, I want to be very clear because the Christians who love the Bible had a very difficult time with me and took it personally. This is not personal. I'm sharing my research, okay? I am 100% of the belief that the Bible is fake. Okay, and here I'll show you how today. And that does not mean if you find comfort in it, you do you, okay? I'm sharing my research, so let's let's back away from trying to <laughs> convert me. <so. laughs> okay, let's start off here. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is one of the world's best-selling books. See, I, I, I've been looking this week into the money thing, okay, because this is all about money and control. Well, who, who sells more books? The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> J.K. Rowling's is next. That's how deceptions work. J.K. Rowling's is a man in a wig running around and acting like she's against the transgender thing. Hey, whatever. Okay, so here's the thing. It's all about the money. So this week I've been looking into the top money things because this could be endless, right? And I see the Bible as a top one. And then below that comes hospitals, universities, all these non-taxable non places, okay? And what I found was very, very interesting when I started digging into the Bible and the money was this. I'm reading from their words, okay? There's no doubt about it. The Bible is one of the world's best-selling books. It also proves that God's word is a moneymaker for today's Christian publishers. The best-selling and fastest-growing version of the Bible in the United States is NIV, and I'll try to explain that in a minute here. But um, because with the Bible... No one owns a copyright <clears throat> or the trademark on the Bible. So essentially, you could go out and publish your own Bible if you wanted to, okay? But there's a catch here, okay? Um, and somebody made a funny quote when I was looking into this Bible business. They said, how about the Bible too? The Roman Empire strikes back. <laughs> okay, so in looking at this Bible, okay, there's a couple, well, there's a million Bibles, okay? But I was... What got my attention about the Bible a few years ago was the fact that there's 66 Bibles, 66, and that the Vatican controlled the rest of the supposed Bibles that are out there. Well, I think I've pretty much proven these people are nothing but a bunch of liars, right? So anyway, so um, what I found interesting was this, was that, so there's no copyright on the normal Bible, right? And remember, the uh, 
Romans were the ones who came up with the copyright business and trademark business, okay, from my last show. Okay, but there's a catch here. Everybody talks about the King James Bible. Well, <laughs> the crown has a perpetual copyright on the King James Version in the United Kingdom. But that means it gives the Cambridge University Press the right to produce it, calling them the King's Printer. So, um, and it charges, gets, it says, it obviously would get royalties from these people, their friends at the Cambridge University Press for printing the KG, it's called the KJV Bible, okay? King James Bible, okay? Rights in the authorized version of the Bible, King James Bible, in the United Kingdom are vested in the crown and administered by the crown's patentee, Cambridge University Press. The production by any means of the text of the King James Version is provided to a maximum of 500 verses. So you could use 500 verses for non-commercial education. Well, that's good to know. Um, and then I'll read you what they say on their wiki page. The King J the King King James Version, KJV, also the King James Bible, and the authorized version is an English translation of the Christian Bible for the Church of England, which was commissioned in 1604 and published in 1611 by sponsorship of King James VI. And the 80 books of the King James Bible include 39 books of the Old Testament, an international section containing 14 books of what Protestants consider the Apocalypse, I don't know what that means, and the 27 books of the New Testament. So this King James thing certainly controls a lot of this Bible business, right? Noted for its majestic of style, the King James Version has been described as one of the most important books in English culture and a driving force in the shaping of the English-speaking world. King James was the king of Great Britain, France, and Ireland. And this is a part that is really sketchy. King James was a black man, and the King James Bible is named after King, king James I of England, who lived, supposedly, from June the 19th, 1566, to March the 27th, 1625. The established church was divided during this era, and he called some conference in 1603. So um, <clears throat> there's also this Bible that's the most popular one here in this country is called the New International Version, called the NIV. It's completely original translation of the Bible developed by more than 100 scholars working from the best available Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts. Yeah, I wonder why they weren't studying Latin. Um, the initial version for the project was provided by a single in, single individual. Wow. One man came up with all this, right? This Bible for here. Who was this, who was this wizard? He was an engineer working with General Electric in Seattle, and his name was Howard Long. Long was a lifetime devotee of the King James Version, but when he shared it with his friends, he was distressed to find that it just didn't connect. 
long saw the need for a translation that captured the truths he loved in the language for his contemporaries in the language that his contemporaries spoke. <laughs> for ten years, Long and a growing group of like-minded supporters drove the idea. The passion of one man became the passion of the church, and ultimately the passion of a whole group of denominations. And finally, in 1965, after several years of preparatory study, a trans notice the word trans, a trans-denominational and international group of scholars met in Palos Heights, Illinois, and agreed to begin work on the project, determining to not simply adapt an existing English version of the Bible, but to start from scratch with the best available manuscripts in the original languages. Their conclusion was endorsed by a large number of church leaders who met in Chicago in 1966. 966, okay. And there they came up with this self-governing body of 15 biblical scholars. They call it the Committee on Bible Translation, or CBT. That was formed and charged with responsibility for the version. And in 1968, the New York Bible Society, which subsequently became the International Bible Society and then Biblica, <laughs> generously undertook the financial sponsorship of the project. The translation of the book was assigned to translation teams, each made up all these leaders. Yeah, interesting stuff, right? Um, so it's, it's a money-making deal, right? Um, the 20, and also remember when they start publishing these books, they can always do updates. And so in the original NIV charter, that was the Bible they were cooking up in this country, provision was made not just to issue periodic updates to the text, but also to create a mechanism for constant monitoring of change in biblical scholarship and English usage. The CBT was charged to meet every year to review, maintain, and strengthen the NIV's ability to accurately and faithfully re render God's unchanging word in modern English. The 2011 update to the NIV is the latest fruit of this process by working with input from pastors and Bible scholars by grappling with the latest discoveries about bi biblical languages and the biblical world and by using cutting tool, re cutting edge research on English usage. The Committee on Bible Translation, Translation has updated the text to ensure that the new international version of the Bible remains faithful to Howard Long's original inspiration. And Howard Long was something else. Okay, here's another thing I found. I went looking for the Bible and money, right? It's, it's, it's the biggest selling book in the world, okay? Selling Bibles is big business for Christian publishers. There's no denying it. Why else would a book that is considered to be inerrant have more than 350 versions by just one publisher? Now, that's a very good question, right? <laughs> I got to look up that word inerrant. I think it means that, that people don't really read it. Um, the fact that it sells so well is encouraging because there are, there, are incredible, there are incredible messages of love, forgiveness, and understanding that are contained within its 66 total books or more depending on the version that is purchased. 
It also mean that means that some of the hype about persecution that is promoted in major Christian media could very well be a way to market this book to Christians who already have more Bibles than they can carry or buy more, so they can arm themselves against coming attacks. Then I was looking into how much money does a Bible bring in every year? Well, <laughs> um, let me see here. The annual sales of... Now remember, I'm not saying this is all true, okay? the an, It's probably higher. The annual sales of all versions of the Bible routinely tops $425 million. Over 100 million Bibles are printed every year. Consumers in the United States will purchase 25% of those newly printed Bibles every year. In the world today, there are more than 80,000 different versions of the Bible that generate at least one sale annually. 80,000 versions, okay? Because remember, I said earlier, anybody can, the Bible is not copywritten, so I could, I could come up with a version <laughs> of the Bible, <laughs> except for the King James ver version, because they would probably sue my pants off and throw me in jail. So, okay. The Bible also owns a record for at least amount of sales per year. They owns the record for least amount of sales per year. I don't know what that means. A translation of the New Testament into Coptic has never sold more than two copies in any year since 1791. So New Testaments into Coptic, C-O-P-T-I-C. Uversion is a top downloaded Bible app for mobile devices. They have over 100 million total downloads and counting. It was one of the first 200 apps that were available on iTunes. It's also been a top 100 free app for three consecutive years. More than 66,000 people, 66,000 of course, are using a Bible app at any given second. Three people share a Bible verse on their social network every second as well. Isaiah 53,5 is the most shared Bible verse on the internet today. 77% of people say that they read the Bible more frequently because they have it available on a mobile device. 66, oh 60%, I can't have 66 on my mind. 60% of people use a digital Bible at church instead of hauling their own printed Bible. Two-thirds of people prefer Bible apps because it gives them access to multiple versions of the Bible without the added cost. In 2005, Thomas Nelson, a leading Bible publisher, was sold for $473 million. So this business you're looking for is Thomas Nelson big Bible publisher. They sold the business for $473 million. They published 60 different editions of the Bible. Bible apps are going to change, eventually change the way people purchase Bible. Although sales are up, there's, oh shoot, I scrolled down here too far. Wait a second here. <laughs> okay, um, Bible apps are going to eventually change the way people purchase Bibles. Although sales are still up, there has been a change in the consumer profile. 
instead of American families purchasing Bibles on a regular basis, it is groups, churches, and summer camps that are, per summer camps that are purchasing them in bulk. With that observation noted, it only takes one traumatic event to encourage Bible sales to increase. In the week after the September 11th, 2001 attacks in the United States, <laughs> excuse me, attacks in the United States, some retailers saw a 40% increase in Bible sales. When people need comfort, they go to the Bible. If they're Americans, regardless of religion, with apps available, multiple versions of comfort can readily be accessible. So then I looked up, um, how is the scope of Bible sales changing? 60% of today's Christians live in the developed world. In 1900, 80% of the world's Christians lived in Europe or the United States. Did you hear that correctly? 60% of today's Christians live in the developed world. In 1900, 80% of the world's Christians lived in Europe or the United States. More Pres Presbyterians go to church in Ghana on a regular basis than they do in Scotland. You know how I love these weird details. <laughs> there are as many practicing Anglicans in England as there are practicing Muslims. A Gallup survey found that less than 50% of Americans can name the first book of the Bible. Only one in three Bible owners know that Jesus developed the Sermon on the Mount. Billy Graham is the most popular answer than the correct answer. So one in three people think Billy Graham did this. Okay, Billy Graham, a big transgendered woman. <laughs> I've talked about Billy Graham in the past. Um, he was very significant in the Bible thumping of this country. 12%, that's the percentage of Christians who believe that Noah was married to the Joan of Arc. There are 900 different versions of the Bible just in English. There is even one Bible that has been translated into the fictional language of Klingdon, K-L-I-N-G-D-O-N. The Bibles are always going to sell well. There's no denying this fact whatsoever. What is unique about Bible sales, however, is that the people who have the most opportunity to purchase this holy book are also the most illiterate about it. So the people who can buy the Bible are actually the dumbest about it. It is being used, and I, I'm reading what's being said here. I'm just not dreaming this up. It is being used as a sort of balm, B-A-L-M, to increase personal spirituality through money. It is being used as a sort of balm to increase personal spirituality through money. The only problem is that the Bible itself says that one cannot serve God and serve money at the same time. With over 80... 80,000 different versions of the Bible, it is fair to ask who, who the real master of the Bible publishing world really happens to be. Okay, I think I've already read this part about the churches and stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I have some um, serious concerns about the Bible being fake, and I don't think that it's all in my head, because what is more satanic then in the Roman show that I just did, they said, I didn't make this up, you didn't make it up, 
they said that the Romans turned pagan temples into Christian churches. And they also put those steeples on top. And those steeples are also those um, obelisks. On top of those steepled churches are obelisks, okay? I don't know how much more obvious that could get, but to me, it looks like it is a fake deal for money. But here again, I am sharing my research. I am not indicating what you should or should not do. Now, here's an interesting thing while I'm on the Romans, and I'm, I'm going to be doing these segments just so I can keep these things on track, okay? I was looking into Germany, the war in Germany, and the act they used because they did the um, Treaty of Versailles. So let me explain a little bit about that here while I have the file open. The act they used after Germany was based on the Carthaginian, C-A-R-T-H-A-G-I-N-I-A-N term. This is from a Roman war involving Carthagin. Carthaginian, that word I just spelled. <laughs> so yeah, um, so they use this Carth Carthaginian term when they were going after Germany. So I was confused. Welcome to my world. I was confused about the Treaty of Versailles and all of that because there were two things. Okay, there was the Treaty of Versailles, and there was the Marshall Plan. And I will add that in here in case it's not in this piece because where was the Treaty of Versailles signed? Well, it was signed in Versailles. Who signed it from Germany? Well, I, I got his name here somewhere. I'll probably not be able to pronounce it, but okay, this was this part really got me. Okay, the Treaty of Versailles was signed in this place in Versailles or palace or whatever. And um, the German representative who signed on behalf of Germany, he signed it in a room. What was the name of that room? The Hall of Mirrors, M-I-R-R-O-R-S. The Hall of Mirrors. <laughs> Some of these people can be pretty funny, right? I don't think most people catch the joke, but I sure did. The Hall of Mirrors is where they signed this. Okay. There were what happened was there was a plan called the Treaty of Versailles, and that failed. Okay, that was supposedly the one around World War One. So, when when the Treaty of Versailles failed, and they had to go back and keep getting into war, the Marshall Plan, the one cooked up by the United States, became a huge success. A miracle, as some people said. Another difference between the Treaty of Versailles and the Marshall Plan was that the first plan, the Treaty of Versailles, was about to repair the eastern part of Europe. The Marshall Plan was to help rebuild Western Europe. So the Treaty of Versailles failed, then they went with a Marshall Plan after World War I. So after World War I, obviously Versailles failed. <laughs> they wrote it in the Hall of Mirrors, so surprise, surprise, right? So after that failed, so after World War II, there was this economist, John Maynard Keynes, among others that I found. He described the so-called peace brought about by the Treaty of Versailles as a Carthagin piece. Okay, so I was wondering, what does a Carthagin piece make? And um, so the uh, Carthagin was a battle from millions of years ago, and um, it was in Rome. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Carthagin, Carthagin, Carthagin. Okay. And who administered this real psycho named, listen to his name. General 
the, after the Marshall Plan, jumping ahead of myself here, after the Marshall Plan was enacted, there was a man or woman, however you want to look at it, who was put in charge of this um, Marshall Plan, okay, and the abuse in Germany and Europe, because that's why I looked at him, because he was the one who executed the Marshall Plan, you know, which included all the starvation and all the, all the other things that I talked about in the show about Germany. So, General Lucius, kind of sounds like Lucifer to me, L-U-C-I-U-S, Dubigan Clay. So, Lucius Clay, or Lucifer Clay, um, born April 23rd, 1898, died, thank God, April 16th, 1978. He was a senior officer of the United States Army who was known for his administration of occupied Germany after World War II. He served as a deputy to General of the Army Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1945. He was also the deputy military governor in Germany in 1946, commander-in-chief of the United States forces in Europe, and military governor of the United States zone. So this guy, um, and Clay also orchestrated the Berlin airlift. And yeah, so Lucius, or Lucifer Clay, was the one who actually fulfilled this plan. Okay, the Treaty of Versailles was the most important of the peace treaties of World War I. It ended the state of war between Germany and the Allied powers. It was signed on 28 June 1919 in the Palace of Versailles, exactly five years after the assassination of Archduke Franz Fernandin, which led to the war. So the whole war evidently, according to them, got started because five years before the treaty came about, there was a, this assassination of somebody called the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, F-E-R-D-I-N-A-N-D, and that supposedly is what led to the war. The other central powers on the German side signed separate treaties. Although the armistice, see, the Treaty of Versailles actually turned into just a ceasefire and not really a thing. Maybe it's because it was written in the Hall of Mirrors, right? Um, okay, so the armistice of 11 November 1918 ended the actual fighting. It took six months of Allied negotiations at the Paris Peace Conference to conclude the peace treaty. The treaty was registered by the Secretariat of the League of Nations, which is now the UN, on 21 October 1919. The Marshall Plan's accounting reflects that aid accounted for about 3% of the combined national income for the recipient country. Uh, well, they were figuring out um, aid based on their growth and all that kind of stuff, which is too confusing to get into. This guy, uh, Graham Allison, states that the Marshall Plan has become a favorite analogy for policymakers, yet few know much about it. Some new studies highlight not only the role of economic operations, but approach the Marshall Plan as a case concerning strategic thinking to face some typically typical challenges in policy. A problem, so yeah, they found a lot of problems, okay, so... 
1947, two years after the end of the war, industrialist Lewis H. Brown wrote, at the request of General Lucifer, no, excuse me, Lucius Clay, there was a thing published, and jot this down, it's called A Report on Germany, okay? And just look up Clay, you'll find all this. You, we have more information on our fingertips at every time in history. Of course, they have polluted it with a lot of dyes, but if I give you the keywords, please look, okay? I can't tell you every single detail here. <laughs> kind of kind of busy and buried in data, so. Okay. Uh, well, let me pick up where I left off before I start ranting about Lucifer and people looking up data. Okay, General Lucius D. Clay, they wrote this, a report on Germany which served as a detailed recommendation for the reconstruction of post-war Germany and served as a basis for the Marshall Plan. The initiative was named after U.S. State Secretary of State George C. Marshall. The plan had bipartisan support in Washington where the Republicans controlled Congress and the Democrats controlled the White House. Yeah, well, you know, they always support things. You ever see them, um, both sides always agree to this stuff, okay? Martin, and this is how they cooked it up. Marshall spoke of an urgent need to help the European recovery in his address at Harvard University in June 1947. The purpose of the Marshall Plan was to aid in the recovery. Oh, and this is what I want to point out here. To combat the effects of the Marshall Plan, the USSR, who had been friends with all these people up until this point, keep in mind, right? they developed its own economic recovery plan. And that plan was known as the Maltov plan, M-O-L-T-O-F, I guess kind of like the Maltov cocktail. Okay, and they always change these things around. So if you're looking for things, all you do is type in Marshall Plan, Wiki, and you'll find it all. The phrase equivalent of the Marshall Plan is often used to describe a proposed large-scale economics rescue program. So in 1951, the Marshall Plan was largely replaced by the Mutual Security Act. So let me get to the main point here, okay? I was talking in the beginning about these Carthaginian piece, okay? A Carthaginian peace is the imposition of a very brutal peace intended to permanently cripple the losing side. The term derives from the peace terms imposed on the Carthaginian Empire by the Roman Republic following the Punic Wars. After the Second Punic War, Carthage, C-A-R-T-H-A-G-E, lost all of its colonies, was forced to demilitarize, paid a constant tribute to Rome, and was barred from waging war without Rome's permission. So this whole thing that they say was taken and put into place during Versailles and Marshall Place was a very brutal piece intended to permanently cripple the losing side. Well, what's going on in Germany now? I guess they're kind of running out of pipeline gas, right? They don't give up their hate, okay. Um, so I looked into what this Carthagin thing, it's a little bit buzzy for my brain, but I'll tell you, um, supposedly this conflict lasted for 23 years and caused substantial material and human loss on both sides. The Carthaginians were ultimately defeated by the Romans in 
241 BC by the terms of a peace treaty. Carthage paid large war reparations to Rome and Sicily, fell to Roman control, thus becoming the first Roman province. And then I think I had something more, um, I was looking more into what their treaties were. The treaties between Rome and Carthage are the four treaties between the two states that were signed between 509 BC and 279. I don't know how these BC things even, I, I don't have a clue how they work. So <laughs> remember the Romans cooked up the calendar. So, uh, uh, okay. So the treaties influence the course of history in the Mediterranean and are important for understanding the relationship between the two most important cities in the region during that era. They reveal changes in how Rome perceived itself and how Carthage perceived Rome, and the differences between the perception of these cities and their actual characteristics. Well, <laughs> I would think that Carthage got brutally beaten, right? As city-states became empires, Rome and Carthage eventually found it necessary to formalize their reciprocal interests in zones of influence. For centuries, the two operated side by side, even as allies. So see, they were bloody enemies, <laughs> punished them, and now they're pals, right? Their e economic interests and methods of expansion were different. Rome did not look to the sea and engaged first in defending itself against the neighboring Samanites, Etruscans, Gauls, and Greeks. And then in conquering them, Carthage lacked a real civic army. Oh, I don't know. Okay, so... Rome did the sea, they conquered all these people. Okay, sounds good, right? By stipulating and observing four main treaties, the relationship between Rome and Carthage was one of tolerance for centuries. Okay, Carthage also concluded two treaties, which led, uh, whatever. Okay. Um, the term refers to the outcome of a series of wars between war, Rome and the Phoenician city of Carthage. See, they're always talking about they were Phoenicians, okay? So they're saying that Carthage was a Phoenician city. Everybody's always talking about, oh, they're Jews, they're Phoenicians. As a matter of fact, their one main agent does all this genealogy stuff, and he harps on this issue of Phoenicians, just harps it and brings it down. He also, very misleadingly, does pages and says, hey, I solved the problem. JFK was really gay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, oh, I'm bouncing around here, but okay. At the end of the third Punic, they had a bunch of these Punic Wars. This is to <laughs> go look at Wiki. You'll, you, you'll get bit dizzier there. Okay. At the end of the third Punic War, the Romans laid siege to Carthage. When they took the city, they killed most, and I'm reading these different segments where I come up with these different, these are what different people are saying about this, okay? So, when they took the city, they killed most of the inhabitants, sold the rest into slavery, and destroyed the entire city. There is no ancient evidence for modern accounts that the Romans sowed the ground, they said that the Romans sowed the ground with salt, but anyways, um, by extension, a Carthaginian peace can refer to any brutal peace treaty demanding total subjugation of the defeated side. 
Well, I think I've explained that. Um, so, yeah, they... Um, And they were doing all this stuff, and the you need to go look for yourself. I'm not going to go through it all because this stuff is so easy to find. Because it's just this is just about crime, murder, and robbing. Okay, um, because they use the Marshall Plan to get about billions of dollars out of the U.S. Treasury. Um, and I looked up who got the most money out of the Marshall Plan. Well, surprise, surprise, it came to the United United Kingdom. Got the was the largest recipient of the Marshall Plan money. And it received about 26% of the total. The next highest went to France at 18%. West Germany, 11%. So, yeah, I guess they didn't get much, did they? Um, oh, because I love backstories, let me tell you a little bit about this. Um, <laughs> Lucius Clay. By March 1942, Clay had risen to the position of being the youngest brig brigadier general in the Army, a month short of his 44th birthday. All the while he had acquired... This stuff is so crazily written, isn't it? All the while he had acquired a reputation for bringing order and operational efficiency out of chaos and for being an exceptionally hard and disciplined worker who went long hours and considered lunch a waste of time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as he's busy starving people, right? Uh, and then um, I, I was looking for who was talking about, I wanted to find out who, who was talking about this Carthage and peace thing, okay? <laughs> None other than Clay. Clay would later remark regarding the occupation directive guiding his and Eisenhower's actions, that there was no doubt that the JCS, that was a group, contemplated the Carthagin peace, which dominated our operations in Germany during the early months of, uh, during the early months of operation. So yeah, this clay person, uh, Lucifer or Luke, Lucas, whoever the name is, is talking about, they thought it was also that Carson thing. So I always have to look for numerous sources to see if anything's really true, right? Um, and then he did some squirrely things, and I'll point out one of them because I, I could go on for a week here. Um, Clay, or Lucifer, <laughs> also reduced the sentence of Ilse Koch, I-I-L-S-E-K-O-C-H. Didn't we have a Koch? That's a family name. Okay, this Ilse Koch was called the Beast of Buckenwald. He had been convicted of murder at the Nuremberg trials and who had infamously or perhaps inaccurately been accused of having gloves and lampshades made from prisoner skin. The reductions in sentences were based on the hasty convictions of some Buckenwall personnel following the end of World War II. Evidence was sometimes questionable and many witnesses claimed to have been beaten by Allied interrogators. Well, I'd probably, they're probably telling the truth, right? They'll probably beat the crap out of him. Clay confirmed several de death sentences. Excuse me. Clay confirmed several de death sentences valid, commuted several, and had some, like Koch's, released after they had served a reduced sentence because of questionable evidence. Under the pressure of public opinion, Koch was rearrested in 1946, tried before a West German court, 
and on 15 January 1951, sentenced to life imprisonment. See, standing up really does help, but it's too bad everybody cowers in their houses with their devices in front of their faces. Okay, caught um, this clay, also appeared on the cover of Time magazine, July the 12th, 1948. On June 26, 1948, two days after the Soviets imposed the Berlin blockade, Clay gave the order for the Berlin aircraft, which was later authorized. But this Clay person had a lot of power. Um, I don't have a lot more to say about him. Um, so, oh, this was interesting. Okay, because supposedly after the war they entered the Cold War, right? All these names have significance, right? Cold War. They also talk about organized crime. Organized crime, also known as the Mafia, right? <laughs> Organized crime? Organized by whom, I would ask, right? So, what did Clay done? Or Clay or Lucifer, however you want to call him. Meanwhile, Clay hired the American intellectual and former Army combat historian Melvin J. Lasky, L-A-S-K-Y. Both developed the concept of a cultural Cold War through which the Soviets would be fought would be fought a psychological, intellectual level. So they wanted to go after them using brain power, right? Clay, or Lucifer, was instrumental in creating funding and promoting D-E-R-M-O-N-A-T, a journal intended to support U.S. foreign policy and win over German intellectuals. Copies of Der Manat, and you can look all of this up, D-E-R, next word, M-O-N-A-T, and put wiki behind it, and you will open your eyes up to a whole new world. So, Clay also studied television propaganda and suggested that in Europe, you get this constant, repeated propaganda without advertising and without break. But in the United States, the advertising gives you a direct feeling of assurance that you haven't got propaganda in the program. So... So they were figuring out they could use advertising in the program, right? Okay. And I will conclude with this. The Marshall Plan is different from Treaty of Versailles because it is a plan to alleviate suffering of some companies, countries while the treaty ends the war. So the plan was to alleviate suffering, but I would have to say, if you listen to my show about Germany, that was really not the plan, right? I, I didn't see this as alleviating suffering in any way, right? In the Treaty of Versailles, signed in the Room of Mirrors, the Germans were forced to take full responsibility for World War I and must pay reparations to countries like France and Britain. The Marshall Plan is put into place after World War II. The Marshall Plan gives about $13 billion worth of economic aid to Western countries whose economies are struggling as a result of the war. Now remember, the U.S. is giving out these billions of tax money to Europe, and they're in the Depression, right? I mean, these dates all kind of happen around the same time, right? It's kind of funny they take all, not funny, funny, ha, 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 but interesting that they're raiding the tax money here on the heels of Depression, FDR, and all those lies, right? Happy times are here again. Okay. I don't think I have anything. Uh, I don't think I have anything. I got um, 
Yeah, this was all just used to trick and blame everybody that it was Germany, right? Um, let me tell you a little bit about this Marshall. The person who wrote the Marshall Plan is a person named George C. Marshall. Um, he was a Secretary of State in 1948. He used to be a general, I guess, so let me read this. A general, now statesman, Secretary of State George C. Marshall would give a speech only a few months later that would again change the world. On June the 5th, 1947, on the steps of Memorial Church at Harvard University, he outlined the ambitious European recovery plan that would soon carry his name, the Marshall Plan. He stated, the modern system of the division of labor upon which the exchange of products is based is in danger of breaking down. It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to to assist in the return of normal economic health to the world, without which there could be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy, and this is him talking, not me, is directed, excuse me, our policy is not directed against any country, but against hungry, hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Well, that is their marketing plan, right? This, is, this, this sums up the psychopaths in one sentence right here, okay? Because they say their policy is not directed against any country, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos, which all these things they create, right? And I will be getting more into those Kennedys, the head mafia company. I have a lot more to say about the Kennys, but I'm going to just close this up now. Um, although the plan was designed primarily by William L. Clayton and George F. Kennan, both members of the State Department, it was Marshall who presented the concept to the American people and Congress in such a manner as to avoid the mistakes that had been made in post-World War One. Europe from reoccurring. So this was, it's always a cleanup act, right? It's like now in the UK, they're yelling, oh, we're going to have to tax everybody. Oh, we got rid of that one person. Oh, it's going to be a tough winter because we got to make up for these. They're always making mistakes and they always want us to come in and rescue them. So it was the, pol this is how they always blame things, right? It was the policy of American, isol America was going under a phase of isolationism, okay? And that's why they tricked things with um, the uh, bombing of, you know, Pearl Harbor. That was a trick to get Americans convinced that we should go to war. Because this is what's going to happen to us in this current state, kids. One day, we're going to wake up. They call these things Black Swans event. Something really big is going to happen. So keep moving along. Keep getting prepared. Keep stacking goods. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to need your help. Let's stand in solidarity with each other for a change. So they said it was the policy of American isolationism that had allowed the Treaty of Versailles to endanger Europe and brought forth a second bitter war to the continent. Marshall realized this mistake must not repeat itself. Sixteen nations met in Paris outlining the assistance that each required and how this aid was to be divided. The final proposal agreed by the delegates asked for $22 billion in aid a figure that President Truman could not justify in Congress. 
Although Truman cut the request to $17 billion from $22 billion, the plan still met with strong opposition after much filibustering. Congress approved $12.4 billion, so they signed it April 3, 1948. This was not that long ago, kids. I was born in 1951. I'm still alive and kicking somehow. So. Uh, i got to close this out before I... Um, there was one other thing I want to talk about, the Economic Cooperation Administration, the ECA. I, I was following, how did the money flow, okay? They, they got Congress to approve the money, so what happened with it, okay? Just like in Iraq, they sent over uh, plane loads of cash, okay? And then Paul Bremer famously said later, they had no accounting because the Iraqis weren't good at accounting. They come up with some crazy explanations, but hey, it's worked, okay? Um, the Economic Cooperation Administration. So the first aid had already been provided to Greece and Turkey in January 1947 prior to the official signing of the program. Italy followed in July 1948. So first money went to Greece, Turkey, and then Italy out of the Marshall Plan, okay, by this Paul G. Hoffman. The majority of the funds provided went to purchase goods mainly manufactured or, pro or produced in the United States. That's where they got all of us to give up everything and go work in factories for them. And they also set their celebrities out on big, massive bond-raising trips to trick everybody. So at the beginning, so, so all this funding goes, the manufacturing comes to the United States, okay? Good times are here again. At the beginning, this was primarily food and fuel. Although this may be considered the main criticism of the program in that America was following a concept for economic imperialism in an attempt to gain economic control of Europe. Well, <laughs> I think it's probably true. But in reality, the amounts that Americans donated as part of the Marshall Plan can hardly be described as imperialism. Well, I, I would have to argue with that, but beginning in April 1948, the United States provided these funds for economic and technical assistance to those European countries that had joined the Organization for European Economic Cooperation. In Germany, a vast amount of money was invested in the rebuilding of industry with the coal industry alone receiving 40% of these funds. See, that's funny. Germany, that was 1945, and right now they got everybody in Germany to, um, well, they didn't get the people, but they flipped the country into believing that they should get rid of all this coal stuff, right? Okay. The concept was simple enough. Companies that were provided such funds were obliged to repay these loans to their government so that the same funds could be used to assist other businesses and industries. Well, there's so many patterns here, I don't want to start getting crazy, but here's one thing that I thought was really significant in all this about Germany, okay? Because it was about the money. Um, and there's still a big, big group in Germany with money. So if Germany's the enemy, I don't know how this all works out, but... <laughs> With the introduction by the Western Allies of the German mark, so the Western Allies were the ones who came up with the German mark as a new official currency on June the 21st, 1948. A new economic era was signaling within Europe and especially Germany.
the Petersburg Agreement, Petersburg Agreement, Peter, P-E-T-E-R, don't they call penises Peters? <laughs> Signed in Germany in November of 1948, increased these production figures for German, Germany dramatically. Therefore, Germany in particular was keen on maintaining this concept even after the Marshall Plan had officially terminated. So this process continues today. And I thought, wow, what continues today? Do tell. Well, here's what it is. So they're cooking up this stuff. They give Germany all this money. And then what do they do? They have this thing. And I won't even attempt. It's called the KFW Bank. KFW. Okay. Headquartered in Frankfurt, has since 1948 administered these funds. Under the leadership of Dr. Herman Joseph Abs and Dr. Ottawa Schneiderman, the KFW Bank continued to work miracles during the Wurzkraft's wonder years, playing an important role in gritting the German economy. So there's where the money flows, right? KFW Bank. Just like they do the same thing here, they give all the banks the money and then the banks owe the money to the students for the fake university educations and all of that, right? It all ties together. It just takes a lot of digging around. So, okay. By 1950, 12% of their loans were used for housing construction. With the unification of Germany, the KFW helped pay between 1990 and 1997 for the modernization of 3.2 million apartments in the former East Germany. Nearly one half of all existing structures. So, so <laughs> between 1990 and they paid for 3.2 million apartments in the former East Germany. That was nearly half of all existing structures in the new states. Well, they were pretty nice to those people, weren't they? Are the people here are living in tents. This institution has an annual revenue of 70 billion euro. The KFW is Europe's largest promotional bank promoting the legacy of the Marshall Plan in third world countries today in much the same way with a new primary emphasis on microfinance, the loaning of small amounts to impoverished third world individuals who start a business, also known as debt slavery. <laughs> okay, the K I have more to say about this slave business when I get back with another segment here. The KFW, which together with its subsidiaries, and there's a whole bunch of them, um, just look up KFW and Wiki, okay? It's a state, is a German state-owned investment and development bank based in Frankfurt. I don't have any current figures after 2018 because I was too tired to look, but as of 2014, it is the world's largest national development bank. These are the psychos that go around in these poor countries, okay? And as of 2018, Germany's third largest largest bank by balance sheet. Its name originally comes from, I'll give you the translation, Credit Institute for Reconstruction. So yeah, pretty big deal. You always have to follow the money because they always have to have a way to dish out this money, right? So, um, Oh, and I found KFW was also involved in um, the collapse here. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? <laughs> in 2008, as investors were scrambling to get their funds out of Lehman Brothers, 
KFW accidentally wired $426 million to Lehman. <laughs> Germany's largest circular newspaper, Bild, B-I-L-D, subsequently called KFW Germany's dumbest bank at the time. <laughs> the bank subsequently fired two board members over the transfer. They said it was due to a glitch in the bank's information technology. Um, they also did the same thing in February of 2017. So in 2008, they accidentally sent 420. Probably it was on purpose, and somehow they got caught, so it becomes an accident, right? And there was another glitch that KFW had, and I'll close off with this, because I want to come back with, this Roman stuff, all these Roman slogans, and oh my goodness, it's something else. It is really something else. <laughs> Where did divide and conquer come from? Well, the Romans. How often have I said this is all about divide and conquer? So let me try to focus the last minute here. <laughs> so 2008, September, they accidentally wired $426 million, okay, to Lehman Brothers. Okay. Then they had another, another incident. And it said, due to a glitch in the bank's information technology, <laughs> KFW again accidentally transferred 7.6 billion euros or 8.2 billion to four other banks in February of 2017, but got the money back, incurring costs. Of, I don't know, whatever. But anyways, yeah, I think I don't think none of these people are honest. But I just have to focus on the biggest one, and I wanted to know where all the money went from the war because they have just like now with Ukraine, they're just flooding money over there and. Stuff. So, um, oh, one last thing. One, you know, I go to look at one simple thing and then it just becomes, wow. Okay. So, um, th it was an interesting thing that I had my suspicions. It said the other European countries over the years have absorbed these prepaid funds into their national budgets, thereby disappearing. It was never intended that these funds were to be repaid to the American government. So, yeah, they did all kinds of stuff, and I'm just getting kind of bored with this all right now. So let me close off for now, and I want to come back. And uh, there's something as far as this American Battle Mommy and its commission, because I've talked so much. You really need to consider, listen to my show about photos. In the title, it says Photos, Castles, and Monuments, okay? Because that's pretty significant how they've been tricking us with all this stuff. So... Um, that was the only reason I was interested in that. So, um, yeah, it, it's something crazy that's going on. I mean, it's all just insane, right? Um, yeah, and this... Uh, so, there seems to be this idea, and based on the show that I did about Germany, which I could barely make it through, I was crying so hard, is that the hunger and starvation experienced by so many displaced persons literally disappeared overnight. Well, I don't think anything disappeared overnight. So, um, and all of this served as a prelude to the creation of the United Europe that we have today, right? Um, and, okay. So they also said global, I don't care about that. Okay, I'm going to close this off um, because there's just so many crimes and I could just hit the big ones. So anyways, be safe out there. Goodbye for now, kids.